everyone. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, the host of Unbecoming. Today we're going to begin a short series, two episodes, on deconstruction. I had a great time on Tim Whitaker's podcast, The New Evangelicals, and we spent the entire time talking about deconstruction. That episode should be out soon, and I'll let you know when it's available. You may also know that I talked about deconstruction along with my good friend Aaron Simmons on Trip Fuller's podcast. But this series will be a little different in the sense that I'm going to put the notion of deconstruction in its original context so you can see how both the term and the idea behind it came to be and also exactly what Derrida himself says about deconstruction. Alas, this is perhaps Derrida's best-known idea, but it's been so removed from its original context that it means, for many people, something, something like destruction. As it turns out, there is a connection there, but I'll save that for later. I'd like to take a moment to remind everyone that the Gadamer course will be starting in October. So many people look back on college as the best four years of their life. A lot of this is certainly due to the new sense of freedom, the lasting friendships, and for some, a bit of revelry on the weekends. One thing about the college experience that many don't realize until they've graduated is that it's a time when you're able to take four years of your life and focus just on learning. Whether you're taking Intro to Accounting or Taylor Swiftery, History and Literature through Taylor Swift. And yes, if you're wondering, that is a real course that was offered at the University of Texas at Austin in 2022. In any case, it's a rare gift to be able to dedicate yourself so completely to topics that you're really interested in. In this spirit, I'd like to invite you back into the classroom to study Hans Georg Gadamer, a man that I knew both as a teacher and friend, and a philosopher that I'm certain will change the way you see the world. If scheduling is a concern for you, please know that we'll be setting up a poll for all of those who are interested so we can set up dates and times that work for everyone. If the cost of the course, 200 for those who don't subscribe on Patreon, 160 for anyone who does subscribe on Patreon up to the 1st of October, please know that we're more than happy to work with you to make sure that resources do not present a barrier. If you're interested in being part of the seminar, please don't hesitate to get in touch with any questions. We can be reached by email at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com, or you can send us a DM on Twitter at onbecomingpod. You might wonder why I'm doing a podcast, so here's an answer to that question. Up until recently, I was a full-time professor. If you're a regular listener, you know that I've worked at such institutions as Wheaton College, the KU Leuven, the University of St. Andrews, and Union Theological Seminary. When I started doing this podcast last year, I was expecting it to be nothing more than a hobby, but the response has been so overwhelmingly positive I decided to leave the Academy and focus on podcasting full-time. Those of you who've heard my story probably also realize that moving to podcasting means that I can finally say what I really think. But it also fills a dream that I had for a long time, and that is finding a way to share what I've learned with as many people as possible. In my seminars, I usually had 15 to 20 students. There was a cap in the enrollment to keep it to a seminar size. But often I think, oh, if only more people could learn about these figures and ideas that I find to be so life-giving and helpful. From what I can tell, the podcast has been filling that role. And you've responded very positively. It's truly encouraging to see our downloads grow every day and week by week, to hear feedback from you, 
some of whom are even former students from decades ago. Often I hear about the unique challenges listeners have faced in the evangelical world. I know about these challenges firsthand. Alas, even in 2023, figures like Bill Gothard continue to have power and sway, and new threats like the theologically challenged folks at the Daily Wire have sprung up spreading their own brand of hate infused with Christianity. I'm constantly aware that how you read the Bible, hermeneutics, can lead to love and kindness, but alas, it can just as easily lead to hate and meanness. My hope in this podcast is that you'll understand the Christian heritage in a way that leads to love and kindness. It's precisely for this reason that I provide criticism of figures like Matt Walsh or Bill Gothard to show that they've turned Christianity into something dark and scary and something that is, I think, deeply unchristian. Those of you who've been listening for a while know that I talk a good deal about Nietzsche. He wrote a book titled The Antichrist. That's how it's normally translated into English. It's in German, Der Antichrist. And the interesting thing about that term is Christ in German is the equivalent of the English term Christian. Knowing how much Nietzsche loved puns and word plays, I'm sure he would have relished the ambiguity of that title. But it also makes us realize that perhaps his target is Christendom, or the cultural expression of Christianity with which he was familiar. In any case, a critique of Christendom, in the original sense of critique, which means to weigh, and thus is neither inherently negative nor inherently positive, that will always be necessary. As we'll shortly see, deconstruction plays an important role in this, but it's a role that you might not expect. The title of our podcast, On Becoming, comes from Nietzsche's life motto, Become Who You Are. As beings who constantly change, we are always developing, and as beings who are fundamentally social and relational, those who are around us, both physically and digitally, have a profound effect on how we change. This is the true danger of people like Bill Gothard and Matt Walsh. They take the most bigoted aspects of conservative Christianity and supercharge them. Rather than making people less dogmatic and more open to inquiry, they close the world to their followers and make them far more dogmatic and sheltered. If you buy into the rhetoric that takes place on these programs, you stop developing. You become static, frozen in a world where darkness is constantly closing in and threats lurk around the corner. I'd like to invite you to take a different path. The only thing that can truly fight radical hate is radical love. I was convinced of this long ago, but my experiences both in academia and more generally have made it clear to me that the fundamental choice really does come down to love and hate. Jesus invites us to love our enemies which is truly subversive of the order of hatred. Well, what is happening right now is incredibly dangerous. Almost every day a new story emerges about conservative Christianity tending more towards theocracy and further from the true teachings of Jesus. The best and most Christian response is to be willing to forgive and to provide a path for redemption. But until we get to such a point, we need to put up a fight but not with hatred. We need to argue against hate and for love. You're already involved in the podcast since you're listening, but perhaps you might be interested in how you can get further involved. When I say I'm looking to build a community with this podcast, I really mean that. And so, of course, I really do want to hear from you. 
whether it's just a short note to let me know that you're listening or a lengthy critique of a recent or past episode or anything in between. I've received some letters from you that have greatly gladdened my heart. At the same time, the kind of world building that we're trying to do doesn't always come cheap. You may have noticed that our podcast is meticulously recorded and edited. Not only is the recording equipment and editing software pricey, but this is now my full-time job. I don't have the stable income of a university professor. So if you can, would you consider helping us build this community? If you find the podcast useful, helpful for your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or at paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Let me add one last thing. I've recently been invited to give a talk at this year's Theology Beer Camp in Springfield, Missouri. The dates are October 19 to 21. In case you're wondering, this is like a casual conference in which people who do podcasts related to theology get together, which is why it's titled The God Pods Strike Back. But it's open to everyone. There will be talks by noted scholars and the opportunity to meet people with probably questions that are very similar to the ones you're asking. If you're interested and want to attend, you can use the promo code BRUCEGODPOD. It always seems so strange when I say that. (laughs) Something for you to consider attending. The description of those invited is that of theology nerd, and only you can decide if that's you. I'm pretty sure I qualify as a theology nerd, though my own way to theology has been through philosophy. I was educated to believe the usual idea that philosophy and theology are two different things. I no longer think that's the case, even if there are important differences between the two. But the main reason for me mentioning Beer Camp on the podcast is simple. I'd really love to meet you and hang out for a while. If you've listened to the two episodes on communication, you've already had an introduction to Husserl, the so-called founder of phenomenology. You've probably also heard me make the distinction between analytic philosophy and continental philosophy. The reality is that this distinction was introduced by analytic philosophers to explain that they don't do continental philosophy. Instead, they maintain that they are much more rigorous in nature. I simply don't think this is true, though it's difficult to define rigor. While it would be too much to say that phenomenology was just continental philosophy during the 20th century, the reality is that continental philosophy has been greatly dominated by phenomenology for the last hundred years. If you were to sit down with any of Husserl's books, you'd immediately discover that he is rigorous and highly nuanced. No one could fault him for a lack of rigor. Put another way, Husserl set in place a framework for thinking about philosophical questions. That framework is as follows. Husserl thinks that philosophers have become a little too attached to their armchairs, which is to say that philosophy needs to get back to what he called the things themselves, die Sachen selbst. The goal of doing a phenomenology is to understand what is in order to understand its meaning. Husserl is a truly complex thinker, and when he died in 1938, there were 40,000 pages of manuscripts that had not been published. Most of these are now available after many decades of hard work. You don't often come across exciting stories of philosophers, but here's one. A young priest was doing work on Husserl for his dissertation and went to Freiburg soon after Husserl had died. There he met Frau Husserl and discovered the existence of those papers. 
Somehow, with the cooperation of the Belgian government and the university where I did my doctorate, he was able to remove all of those papers, Husserl's desk and furniture, under diplomatic immunity. All of those things, plus Frau Husserl, were brought to Belgium and hidden. Both Edmund and his wife Malvina were of Jewish heritage, which meant that Husserl had not been allowed to publish in Germany once the Nazis were in power. Although he died of natural causes, getting Frau Husserl out of Germany was essential to protect her. When I mentioned that Husserl insists that we need to go back to the things themselves, he also meant that we reconsider or rethink even some of the most common distinctions that often go unnoticed, precisely because they're so familiar we no longer see them. One of those distinctions that Husserl set out to rethink was that between nature and spirit, or in German, Natur and Geist. Another way of putting this distinction is between the humanities and the sciences. Husserl was convinced that philosophy could be done in a scientific manner, though obviously what counts as rigor in physics, for example, isn't going to be the same as rigor in philosophy. However, Husserl wants to make clear that philosophy isn't any less rigorous than the sciences. But here's the interesting part. In taking apart this distinction, Husserl spoke of his work as unbuilding. It was a careful, even meticulous process in which the various parts that form the distinction are examined in turn. The word unbuilding in German is abbau. I believe that what Husserl was doing was similar to the classic understanding of the Greek term analusis, which we normally try and translate as analyze, which literally means breaking up of anything complex into its simple components. That's from the Oxford English Dictionary. If you heard the second part of the interview with Liz Esmond, you may remember that she talked about deconstructing binaries and that the very queerness of Christianity does this in many ways. Just to give an example of what she was talking about, Paul writes, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. In effect, that is what Husserl is doing by unbuilding the nature-spirit distinction, in which he shows that they are not as different as they might at first seem. One of the reasons for mentioning that Husserl practiced Abbau is to make clear that Derrida's idea of deconstruction doesn't come from nowhere. But there's another reason, and that is to make clear that some of the things in Derrida that critics most attacked are already present in Husserl's thought. We could say that Derrida discussed them in more hyperbolic terms than did Husserl, which is, I think, truly the case. Yet there's another problem that should be mentioned here just briefly, namely that the major reception of Derrida in North America was in literature departments, which means that the vast majority of people who were reading Derrida had never read Husserl and so simply didn't understand the extent to which Derrida was indebted to Husserl. Put another way, if you specialize in Husserl at an evangelical college, you're unlikely to get in any trouble. If you teach Derrida, like I did, you're practically asking for trouble. But I've always thought that what Derrida is saying is too important to dismiss. Moreover, once you get past the hype, you realize that Derrida is a truly serious philosopher. He describes himself by saying, I am a very conservative person. He describes his reading style as follows. However old I am... I am on the threshold of reading Plato and Aristotle. I love them, and I feel I have to start again and again and again. 
That simply doesn't sound like something radical to me. But I need to add one more important bit to that picture. What people often fail to realize is that there is not just one way of being conservative. Further, most people think that being conservative means holding on to whatever came before. As always, of course, the devil is in the details. Holding on to what? Think about how Derrida expresses his conservatism. He returns to ancient texts with the sense that he's reading them for the first time. In other words, to be a good conservative, it's not enough to hold to the usual interpretations of Plato and Aristotle. Instead, one has to go back to the texts themselves. It's exactly this that I'm recommending regarding the Bible. Go back to the text and see what it says. My contention is that evangelicals like to say that they are the conservatives, but what I find them to be conserving is often bad and unhealthy interpretations of the text. I've mentioned before that many evangelical pastors feel that they can no longer teach the Sermon on the Mount because people listening have the reaction that what Jesus is saying sounds too much like socialism, or that his invitation to love our enemies can't work in a time when people feel so threatened. You can call this whatever you like, but I don't think the word conservative is correct. If someone is purposely ignoring some of the most basic teachings of Jesus, I don't see how that person can consider himself or herself to be a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I don't think the word Christian is very appropriate. I hope that gives you at least a glimpse into why Derrida thinks he's a conservative, because he's trying to conserve the tradition. But there's more to this story. We need to mention Martin Heidegger, who eclipsed Husserl in terms of fame. I simply mean by that that more people have heard of Heidegger than Husserl. I don't mean anything more than that. And Heidegger had his own version of unbuilding. He called it destruction, which is basically spelled just like the English term, but with a K. Again, you might think, whoa, that sounds really violent. But what Heidegger had in mind was much more subtle. Heidegger believed, and I think he's right, then the process of coming up with philosophical theories, philosophers and their theories, usually both reveal and conceal. That is, some things are left unsaid or even covered over. There are many different reasons why that might be the case. A philosopher figured out how to solve a problem but failed to realize that the solution created a new problem. Or in order to provide order, things get oversimplified. While a philosopher might have ulterior motives for such a move, most of the time it's much more likely that the philosopher was able to see or understand some things, but not others. If you think about it, we're always in that place. We understand many things, but we also misunderstand many things, some of which get cleared up or cleared away over time, but others which remain. Heidegger's point was relatively simple. We need to read philosophical texts not merely to understand what they're saying, but also what they do not say either because it would have been so common an assumption that no one would think about mentioning it, or because some things couldn't be said publicly, or for that matter, many other reasons. By the way, I should mention that one of the things that separates analytic from continental philosophers is that the former are much more enthusiastic about using categories in order to divide up the world than are the latter. One of the reasons I worked in continental philosophy is that it is so much more attentive to the fact that dividing up the world into simple binaries doesn't work very well, precisely because 
when you make hard and fast distinctions, many of those distinctions come undone, which is to say they unbuild themselves in the sense that if we pay close enough attention to what supposedly differs, we recognize that the differences tend to obscure the similarities. While this episode is on the notion of deconstruction, I think it'd be helpful to introduce another term that Derrida uses. It's difference. In effect, Derrida takes the usual French term, uh, that's, by the way, spelled exactly as it is in English, so with an accent over one of the E's, and changes the E that normally comes after the R to an A. The result is a word that sounds identical to the original spelling, but now means something different. I find the word difference to be extremely helpful. Here's what I mean. We're constantly faced with phenomena that often look alike, but are not actually completely alike. For instance, you probably know there are no two leaves of any plant or tree that are identical to other ones on that same plant or tree, or for that matter, any trees or plants. Every leaf is different. Difference as a concept is designed to make it possible to talk and think about or react to the fact that things can be both similar and different at the same time. While well, every single leaf is different from every other single leaf, we can still identify two leaves as being both from, say, an oak tree. They are not identical, and yet they are clearly oak leaves. It's the same with people. None of us are identical, but we are all human beings. We are different and the same. My own formula for this point goes like this. In our similarities, there are differences. In our differences, there are similarities. If you pause a moment to think about the similarities of, say, academics, you'll see that they clearly are similar in certain ways. Most academics teach students and write papers for conferences. Given that many aspects of the academic world are similar across the world, there's no question that academics are pretty much similar. But once you see the similarities, you also start to know the differences. Some academics have desks that look so neat you'd think a cleaner must come by every few hours. Other academics have desks that are literally covered with an assortment of papers and all the other stuff that you need as an academic. Just so you know, I've purposely chosen a relatively neutral point of contrast to make it clear that many of our differences are just differences in style. Some, however, go more deeply, meaning that for any two philosophers, you'll likely get at least two different answers to many of philosophy's most basic questions. Of course, just how different they are is also worth considering, for often people think they disagree when in fact they're actually much closer to one another than the disagreements would indicate. So again, we need to be focused on both similarities and differences. Derrida insists that deconstruction simply happens even when no one is trying to deconstruct anything. The reason is that Derrida thinks that deconstruction is a fundamental structure of our minds, or even meaning in general. That's the reason that it happens without anyone wanting to do it. So what is this it that happens? Derrida is not known as a clear writer. In fact, he writes in a style that is sometimes very difficult to understand. You might be interested to know that I took two seminars with Derrida. I was in New York City and was a visiting scholar at the New School, and he was visiting, and I was able to take his seminars. What most struck me about these seminars was that it was immediately obvious that Derrida is capable of being crystal clear. 
In fact, he kept saying things like, is all this clear enough? Or would you like me to explain this a little more? In other words, the style he writes in is the style he's chosen. But there's a little text titled, Letter to a Japanese Friend. And if you hunt around online, you'll be able to find it. It's short. I mean, just a few pages. And it's very clear. The context for the article is the question of how to translate the term deconstruction into Japanese. Derrida writes, among other things, I wish to translate and adapt to my own ends the Heideggerian word destruction or abbau. So the point of origin, you can see, is clearly Husserl and Heidegger. Interestingly enough, Derrida goes on to say, but in French, destruction too obviously implied in an annihilation or a negative reduction much closer perhaps to Nietzschean demolition than to the Heideggerian interpretation of the type of reading that I proposed. So I ruled that out. Thus, Derrida rules out precisely the word Heidegger uses because he thinks it sounds too negative. <laughs> I find that utterly fascinating. Derrida worries about using a term that sounds too negative, so he decides to go with something that he thought sounded a bit more neutral. I think he's right about that. But one of the points that Derrida makes is that once you put your words into writing and publish them, they take on a life of their own. By the way, I'm not so sure that Nietzsche's demolition is all that different, but that's a topic for some other episode. Derrida provides a listing of dictionary meanings for the term deconstruction that include to disassemble the parts of a whole, to deconstruct a machine to transport it elsewhere, to deconstruct verse, rendering it by the suppression of meter similar to prose. Derrida writes that the word was rarely used and was largely unknown in France. He goes on to say, but the undoing, decomposing, desedimenting of structures was not a negative operation. Rather than destroying, it was also necessary to understand how an ensemble was constituted and to reconstruct it to this end. Derrida insists, and again I'm quoting here, deconstruction is not a philosophy or a method. It is not a phase, a period, or a moment. It is something which is constantly at work and was at work before what we call deconstruction started. Thus, the reality is that deconstruction happens. It's not something one does per se. If anything, it's something that happens to texts and systems and ideas and even to us. Let me provide an example. When I set off to spend the summer in Europe at age 18, I wasn't trying to deconstruct anything. I didn't even know that word. But one of the things that destructed before my very eyes was the idea that the U.S. is the greatest country in the world. After that summer, I simply couldn't believe such a thing anymore because it didn't make any sense. Well, I could tell that life in Belgium, where I was most of the time, was somewhat different from life in the U.S., it became clear to me that talking about either place as being better could only be done in very restricted ways. So you could comment on diet or cleanliness or efficiency, but commenting on life overall in the sense of, you know, pronouncing one way of life as superior, that just didn't make sense to me anymore. Put another way, if you live in Belgium, you'll enjoy the fact that life is not nearly as hectic as in the U.S., but you'll also have to put up with the other side of that coin, namely, such a society is less efficient. Or, if you really like order and efficiency, then you can live in Germany which does both of those really well. But then you'll have to put up with the rigidity in regard to rules and the high expectations of conforming. In case you're wondering what I mean about 
conforming. I remember that one of the Fulbright students in Germany had been told by his landlord that he would need to get matching brown curtains for his apartment so the building would look uniform. Anyway, my point here is that simply experiencing another way of living may cause you to ask questions about your own way of living, including asking whether this other way of living might be better in certain respects. This point can also be made in regard to text. Derrida insists that texts are not deconstructed. Instead, they deconstruct themselves. What he means is that when we read texts carefully, we can see the complications and possible contradictions for ourselves. In other words, you don't need to look for problems with the text. They will become apparent in reading the text. But of course, you have to read the text very carefully. Similarly, you don't need to look for positive things either. They will also become apparent, but you still have to read the text very carefully. Well, that's all for today's episode. In the next episode, I'll spend some time discussing how the notion of deconstruction has been received. For instance, often people point out to me that Derrida's no longer studied as much in literature departments. And my usual response to that point is simply the following. That's because many of the ideas that Derrida presented have become part of the fabric of our thinking so that they are no longer controversial. The very fact that most people have heard the word deconstruction, even if they've never heard of Derrida, gives you some idea of the impact of his thinking on the world at large. Well, I hope you found today's episode both interesting and informative. If you're finding the podcast to be helpful in your own becoming, consider supporting it at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through the PayPal app or paypal.com. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can, of course, follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode on the legacy of Derrida and his ideas. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.